0: podcast. I'm your host Lev Moscow and today we're really excited to be joined by Leander Heldring, who is the Donald P. Jacob Scholar and assistant professor at the Kellogg School of Management at Northwestern University and welcome to the show Leander.
1: Thank you Lev. I'm very happy to be here.
0: Well this is an exciting show. So let's uh, let's start off with a paper that, that you co-authored with James Robinson and Parker Whitfield in 2022 just this, la- this, this last month about the impact of bombing on England and the social contract in England and income inequality. So there's a lot there. So maybe what we could do first is we could start with this scholar Titmus, who published some work in 1950 and we can talk about what he, what he was arguing and then what you set out to do.
1: Yeah, so Richard Titmus was this sociologist who worked for the longest time at the LSE London School of Economics in London, and he was sort of thinking about the impact of the war. And the war in England did a great many things. You know, England wasn't invaded itself, but of course it was involved with the war on the continent and the war in the rest of the world, and it was attacked by Germany, not with soldiers, but through the air. And so I think everybody has heard of the Blitz, you know, the the large bombings of predominantly London, but it turns out these bombings happen everywhere. And Titmuss was sort of broadly thinking about what did the war do for England? And so he thought about the evacuation of Dunkirk, the the effect of the blitz on morale, but most importantly, he thought about the notion of the social contract and what he meant by that, and we sort of took up his way of thinking about this, is that really what happened is that the war in England affected everybody. So not just very rich people, not just very poor people, but you know, anybody could be in the way of a bomb, or anybody could be conscripted and be involved with the war. And sort of his view was that that necessarily led to sort of a new willingness in England to cooperate on social issues. And that, therefore, one impact that the war had was basically to create this willingness across English society to think much more broadly about things like unemployment insurance, healthcare, old age insurance—sorry, uh, old age pensions—and things like that.
0: This is an exciting project. You want to you want to prove or disprove the, the thesis. How do you measure people's commitment to? something that seems sort of vague, like a social contract.
1: Yeah, so in England during the war, there's something was called up that was called the Beveridge Report in 1942. And the Beveridge Report basically made these sweeping proposals for new social legislation. And this was published right in, right in the middle of the war when basically Parliament saw around it that people were basically suffering and at the same time working very, very hard for the country. And basically, the basic tenets of that report were taken up by the Labour Party. And come elections in 1945, the Labour Party basically ran on this platform saying, look, you guys being the people who are sort of on the poorer end of the spectrum, you guys worked really hard in the war and we're going to give you something back for that. In fact, Winston Churchill's right-hand, right-hand man for domestic affairs was this guy called Ernie Bevin. And Ernie Bevin basically went around the country the entire war, basically promising people, saying, look, if you guys stick with us, if we win this war, we're gonna work on a better welfare state. We're gonna work on redistribution. So basically this idea that the war needs to lead into social change became taken up by the Labour Party. So when we were working on this project, we thought, well, it's really difficult to measure something as murky as a social contract, especially comparing one place in England to another place in England. Perhaps we'll get to that. So what we're just going to do is that we're going to see who votes for Labour. And the idea would be that if you vote for Labour more in the 1945 elections and subsequent elections, you subscribe to this idea that what really needs to happen at that point in time in England is to think more carefully about social issues.
0: I see. So tell me about the the study. What did you do and then what did you find?
1: So we started out thinking that we needed a way to measure the impact of the war within England. Because what what we wanted to do is say, well, there's some places in England that they're going to be more affected by the war and there's other places that are going to be less affected. And what we did is that we took advantage of the recent publication by the English government of all bombing raids that had taken place within England between 1939 and 1945. And most of those took place early on in the war. And some people will perhaps notice at the Battle of, Battle of Britain, but there were about 30,000 bombing raids carried out by the Germans over the course of the war in England. And so what we do is that we took a local administrative unit So think of that as perhaps like a county in the United States. And what we say, well, there's some counties that are gonna be hit harder than others. So what we're going to do is that we're gonna count the number of bombing raids that a particular place received. And we're gonna divide that by the surface area of that place. So you of have a sense that, you know, you're not gonna be mechanically more bombed if you're larger. And we're gonna compare places that are more heavily bombed that way to places that are less heavily bombed.
0: And then what did, what did you find?
1: So we look at two broad sets of outcomes. So I should introduce these a little bit first before I get to the results. What we wanted to do is we wanted to sort of touch upon two aspects of the impact of the war, and especially in the context of bombing. So the most obvious thing that bombing does is that it blows stuff up. And in fact, You know, I say that now a bit flippantly, but in fact, Mm -hmm. there is a large literature that sort of emphasizes that one way in which the war impacts subsequent outcomes is simply by destroying stuff. So imagine the rich own factories, the rich own harbors, the rich own houses. If I bomb those to pieces, then now the rich are less rich and they're perhaps more willing to vote with other people. So that's what we call in the paper sort of the direct channel. So in order to measure the direct channel, what we do is that we take advantage of the fact that in England, everybody, when they pass away and possess over a small but not null amount of wealth, they have to file what's called a probate. And that's basically a statement of your wealth that will then be taxed with an inheritance tax. And those probates are recorded. And so we used all probates for this period with where everybody who died lived when, before they died to basically compute for each of these little counties how unequal they were before bombing and after bombing. And so when we look at this uh, direct effect, what we find, is when we look at all of England, there's essentially no effect of bombing on inequality. So that's not to say that bombing didn't destroy stuff, but that is to say that inequality did not fall more in places that were more bombed than places that were less bombed. Mm-hmm. So this is evidence that it against this idea that, well, the changing of the social contract is really just about flattening the country. So then we moved on to Wait, before, the second. Before,
0: before yeah. you tell me when you moved on, um, this is the findings that you find first, right? Mm-hmm. Does this disappoint you? Do you sort of think maybe let's just pack it pack it in? What are, you, what are your thoughts at this, at this moment?
1: So, there is, so there's two things here. One is that it is true that England was much less heavily bombed than, for example, Germany because the Royal Air Force regained air superiority pretty early on into the war. So it may just be that there weren't that many bombs thrown relative to what people owned. Mm-hmm. Now, what I think is more important, however, is that this is a result that we obtained for England as a whole. And it turns out that Northern England is quite a bit different from Southern England in the following sense. In southern England, where typically like around London, bombs were thrown for a different purpose than in the north. So in the south, bombs were basically thrown everywhere as a, um, as a way to depress morale. And in the north, bombing was much more targeted towards specific cities like Leeds, Manchester, or the Industrial Coventry, the Industrial Heartland of England. And so there were you see is when you just look at the North. So we remove the South from our sample. We just look just at the North that there, in fact, bombing does lower inequality. Whereas in the South where you bomb everybody equal, there is no effect. Mm -hmm. And if you add those two up, you you come out to seeing not very much, but that's just because the strategies of bombing were essentially different between the South and the North. So I think like, as a theory for why England as a whole is different, it's not very good. But where the Germans directly targeted the productive capacity of the local economy, we do see an effect.
0: It's very interesting. And you also, you, you also say that in the South, after 1945, people just go back to voting conservative once they get the NHS. But that doesn't happen in the North. I'm wondering what... What do people get in the South from voting for the conservatives? What are the conservatives offering?
1: Yeah, so in order to understand this, I should first um, reintroduce our second set of results. So our, the results we just discussed where we directly relate bombing to inequality, just to repeat, we call those the direct effects. And then we look at voting, voting patterns for labor in what we call the indirect effects. And when you just look at the country as a whole, you see that bombed places, relative to non-bomb places, vote a lot more for labor. But here too, we have this very interesting north-south split. So in the north, you see a persistent shift towards labor. So not only in the 1945 election do people vote more for, for labor, also in the 1950 election and in subsequent elections. Whereas, like you point out, in the South, basically people only shift in 1945. And basically the way we interpret it is that it's very consistent with tidbits. So most of the rich people in England live in the South. So in 1945, just after the end of the war, they basically buy into this idea that, well, we all got through this together And we need to reward the people that worked so hard for the war. So basically, we see the the founding of the NHS, so the National Health Service, the um, collective healthcare in England. And we see other social legislation pushed through. But after that's gone through, people start realigning with the conservatives who more closely represent their economic interests in the Mm -hmm. South, but not in the North.
0: I see. So this is about economic interest in the South. It's, it's not that the working class shifts to conservative after 45. It's that the wealthy shift back to conservative after the 45 election, because, I mean, is it right to say that they were essentially feeling, I don't know if guilt is the right word, but they're feeling more solidarity towards the working class and feeling like the working class made these sacrifices. They deserve something, but then very quickly they move away from that. Is that, is that correct?
1: I think that's exactly right. And my interpretation, so although we can, we can present evidence for this, is that the NHS is instituted by law. So once you have it as a result of the 1945 election, it's not going to go away anymore. So basically, there was this moment of solidarity which led into a series of legislative changes benefiting the poor. And afterwards, essentially, the... People went back to the way they used to vote but before with either richer people voting more conservative and the poorer people voting more for labor.
0: That's very interesting. And do you have any data to show what happens in, in France and Germany?
1: Unfortunately, we, 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 we don't. So in part because the data at the level of granularity we have in England. I don't think exists. So in England, we have individuals' wealth by name for every person in the country. And I don't think that exists back then. Also, because in in France and Germany, so the history of social legislation goes back quite a bit further, and the changes are not as dramatic as they are in England. But my sense is that this is a wildly understudied topic. Mm -hmm. So I think if anybody would want to do that for France and Germany, I think that'd be a great idea. Because maybe if you'll allow me, I'll say a few words to to, to put the study in a bit of a broader context, which will help with answering this question too. Yes, please, yeah. So over the last 10 years or so, we've seen a lot of new interest in in the study of, of inequality. And this is in part in response to a big line of work in economics that basically pointed out that since the 1980s in the United States and in England, inequality has gone up a lot. And people started thinking a lot about why this is, and one person that many people will be familiar with who's sort of been at the forefront of this work is Thomas Piketty, but he not at all the only one, there's many, many people working on this. And that finding, so that that inequality has gone up so much since the 1980s, sort of very much at odds with the way we've always thought about inequality, which is associated with the economist Simon Kuznets, who in the 1950s pointed out that as countries industrialize, inequality tends to go up first and then comes back down as social legislation is introduced, exactly consistent with what we find in this paper. But then we saw as a society that, in, that inequality went up massively. And we tried to understand, this It sort of gave rise to this whole research agenda, trying to understand, okay, what brings inequality down in the first place? And from that agenda, people started thinking about Things like war. And that has sort of been applied. That idea has been studied in some contexts. And I think we have we have a great we have a good good, a good good example here of one context. We studied is in England. But because this focus on inequality is so new, I don't think there has been a lot of work on studying these questions around bombing in the social contract anywhere else. But I think that would be a very fruitful area of research.
0: Yeah, and, and I think more broadly, the question of, that you address is the question of shocks, that when you have these large shocks, it can produce situations of more solidarity. Um, I'm wondering if you expected to see at all this COVID shock, or if you, if you expect the COVID shock to produce more solidarity and that the wealthy sort of say, well, you know, this the poor have really suffered here, the frontline workers have suffered most let's let's redistribute wealth.
1: yeah there, there there's other people that know much more about this than i do but just from looking around i see sort of two reactions here the one is sort of in what people say and the other is in what people do so i think like you point out there's a lot of solidarity sort of in In the media, you know, we all have to stand with the frontline workers and they've been doing the hard work, putting themselves at risk, etc. At the same time, there's a clear schism almost between people that have the type of jobs that actually do let them stay at home and work from home and people that don't. And in the country where I'm from, the Netherlands, this hasn't translated at all for example, in higher wages for frontline workers who, um, in the Netherlands, are all, all government employees. So it seems that there's somewhat of a mismatch there between what we say and what we do. Um, so I hope that'll change as you know, we come out of, the, out of the pandemic and perhaps it's a time to, to think, you know, now that we've gone through this, what, what, what are we supposed to do? but I certainly hope it'll have an effect like that.
0: To go back to the study of wealth inequality, you, you write in your paper that there's been a, a big shift towards looking at shocks as a cause, um, either of more inequality or, or less, but um, I'm wondering at the beginning of your paper, you say that the study of inequality goes back to like the neoclassical economists and, and you know, Ricardo and Marx are looking at whether there's something in, intrinsic about capitalism that produces this kind of inequality. What do you think about that? Is is there just something about capitalism that creates wealth inequality and that we had this brief period from, you know, 45 to 75 across the industrialized world where there was a a convergence, but then again, we go go back after 75 or 79 to um, a divergence again. Is there something about the system that creates the wealth inequality in other words?
1: So, this was certainly the view of the, of the economists in the 19th and the early 20th century, heavily influenced by people like Ricardo and Marx, who would see these stages. And so, Kuznets, who I already brought up, said this in a more sophisticated form. And, and, and his idea was that you know, as technologies become available in the Industrial Revolution, there are people with access to capital that are able to take advantage of this, and these people get very rich everybody else competes to work in the factories that these people run. And so initially, inequality goes up a lot because the people with access to capital become a lot richer and everybody else's wages fall. He then pointed out that you know, as time goes on, the people will start enacting social legislation and the inequality will go down. And I think this is very consistent sort of Marxist idea of stages of society where the ultimate stage is communism. My own view is that inequality is very, very much an outcome of the incentives and the rules we put in place as society. And I think we have plenty of examples of countries in Europe, for example, versus the the United States or versus countries in East Asia that have chosen different paths here and have enacted legislation to stay on these different paths. What I do think is that there is a tendency of people to try to want to monopolize any advantage they have. You know, we see this in the, in the United States with access to education, for, for example. So legislation should try and keep pace with the efforts of people to try and monopolize the, you know, the advantages they have. But I don't think that there's anything that sort of operates outside the political and social choices that we can make that is inherently baked into the system in the way that it's going to lead us to a place where we're much more equal or much less equal.
0: Yeah, I wanted to talk to you if we could about, I've been reading a lot of your work in preparation for the interview and you've done, well, a fantastic work on a lot of different issues. And one question I was thinking about is, as I was reading your stuff is you write a lot about state formation and the role that, for better or worse, bureaucracies can play in our lives. And I'm wondering if you could talk a little bit about your, your interest in bureaucracy and, how, I guess, how you feel about highly centralized states now after the work you've done both around you know, Rwanda I'm thinking specifically but also around, around Germany.
1: So for me, as a social scientist, I'm sort of infinitely puzzled by states and governments and bureaucracies. For me, in the, in the sense that we live in societies where we're all okay by, with being told what to do by complete strangers. And that has evolved in a certain way, to, to the point where we are now all okay with having elections, electing people, and then we're, we're okay with these people, you know, policing us, essentially. And so I've been very puzzled, where does that come from? And what do we need to do to make sure that that doesn't go wrong? So you, so you alluded to some of the work I've done in, in Rwanda and in Germany, and that work actually shares one theme. Which is that we need to be very careful with how we construct government and how we construct bureaucracies. So, in both papers, what I pointed out, I'll stick with the example of Rwanda here, is that when you compare places that have a very well functioning bureaucracy to places that have a less well functioning bureaucracy, as you can think in your head, compare a European country to a country in Africa. We think that the European countries are, are typically better off because society functions better. So if you have a dispute, you can take it to the government, the government will help you. If there's a contract, excuse me, that, that, that isn't honored, the government will help you. That may not happen in Africa, and we may think that that's, that, that's not a good thing. What I did in Rwanda is to point out and say, like, Yes, that, that may be true. And we think of, for, for your listeners who don't know much about Rwanda, Rwanda is a poster child for development in Africa. It's doing very, very, very well. So we think we need to have other places be more like Rwanda. They should be better organized. The government should be accountable, etc. But what I pointed out is that exactly those parts of Rwanda where the government does its job better, are also the places where, in their horrific genocide in 1994, more people were killed by that same government. And I'm sure at this point you can see where this is going for, for, for Germany. In Some other mm-hmm. work that I have, I show that parts of Germany where, where people were better protected before the Nazis came to power were also the parts where the bureaucracies helped the Nazis more to persecute the, uh, the Jews. So the theme that comes out of this is that government is a remarkable institution, but ultimately it's the people that direct the government. So if you have a well-functioning bureaucracy, this can be directed one way towards very productive ends, helping citizens, but it can flip and it can be directed another way with potentially disastrous consequences. And so I think that's something to keep in mind when thinking about, you know, well-intentioned policies to strengthen any, any government that, perhaps to bring it back to the England example, a government can enact social legislation and follow through on that and, involve, and improve the lives of many people that before didn't have healthcare or even worse, didn't have enough to eat. But we need to be thinking very carefully about the design of such in, uh, institutions in society.
0: When I was in grad, I went to graduate school at the University of Amsterdam, and my when my parents came to visit, uh, we went to the Jewish Museum. And one of the things that really surprised my father when we went to the museum was the number of Jewish people who were handed over to the the Nazis by the Dutch. So I think it was you know ninety percent of Jews in Holland were killed, and then I think in Denmark it was less than half of that. And um, we were talking about the, and I was actually going through the process of trying to get paperwork to to study and stay in Holland and just dealing with the Dutch bureaucracy. And so I was reading your paper and I was thinking, I wonder, the paper about Germany, I wonder if the the Dutch had the kind of bureaucracy, the highly developed bureaucracy in the 1940s that they do today and where that comes from. And then I read another one of your papers about the, the state, formation in Iraq and how the state in, initially forms because of changes in the rivers and the need for canals. And I was wondering, um, just to go back to Holland for a sec, because I know you're from there, and I'm wondering, first of all, did, did that highly developed bureaucracy begin in the 1940s or before that? Did they already have a highly developed bureaucracy? Was that one of the reasons that so many Jewish people were turned over to Germans? And did... And this is a maybe a bizarre question, but did the, the situation with the water in Holland, with, with, the, with the, the need to build dikes, create that highly centralized state and bureaucracy?
1: So to your first point, I think I, I may maybe misquoting the numbers, but I think that after Poland, the Netherlands is the country in the Second World War where the highest fraction of the pre-war population of local Jews was deported and in Poland did what well, this was essentially because the Nazis went and killed everybody but in the Netherlands it was not like that so in the Netherlands it was in part because there was a group of Dutch citizens that, that collaborated but it was also in part because the Dutch administrative records were very, very good. So what the Nazis did, they basically walked into the municipal offices and got lists of where everybody lived and just rounded them up one after the other. And so this certainly comes back to your point of this. You know, at that point in time, from the perspective of you know, the Netherlands as a country, its history, and most definitely from the perspective of the Dutch Jews, and the other Dutch citizens, we would have liked to have the government be a little bit less functional at that time. Mm-hmm. So I agree with that completely. So on your second point, maybe by way of background, um, I wrote this paper where I, where I pointed out that when we think about where does government come from to begin with, there are sort of two ways that we, that, that we think about that. One is sort of a negative theory, which is government comes from some people wanting to extract resources or tax or repress another group of people. And the government is essentially the organization that lets them do that. And sort of more positive theory is that, well, there's just certain problems that arise when you as people live together that a government is very well positioned to solve. And I gave the example of that paper of water management. So for example, if I'm sitting somewhere and I'm having a farm that I water from a river, I need to make sure that somebody who sits upstream from me, you know, 10 10 kilometers away, uses as much as they need and not more because everything that they use doesn't flow to me. So here we have a very typical situation in which you would want to say like, well, if only there were an organization that would step in if we don't behave socially. So I would want that organization to go upstream to this person if they're using too much and tell them to not do that. But in turn, I'd be happy if that organization came to me when I'm doing something wrong. Like I win from having that organization there. And so I wrote about that in the context of Iraq I don't have, I have not written something similar about the Netherlands, but it's certainly true that something like 50% of the Netherlands is below, below sea level. And there's a very elaborate system of local government, local institutions that manage that water problem. So in essence, if somebody doesn't do their work and the dikes break, a lot of people are screwed. So those people will happily pay taxes and give up some of their autonomy for somebody to help them to solve that problem. So I do think that there's something to it, but that would also be in sort of, for, for a student, another very interesting project to, uh, to work on, to think about those ideas in the context of the Netherlands. Okay, so
0: we've got two projects, right? We've got the Dutch project, and then we've Got the project of Germany and France to find out what happened. That's right. To commitment to social contracts. Well, thank you. Thank you so much.